Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church Owasso Sermon Podcast. Grace changes everything. There's a name, a man named Marshall uh, McLowan who wrote a book in 1964 that has a relatively boring title. It's called Understanding Media, The Extension of Man. And in chapter one of that book, Marshall McLuhan included a phrase that just caught fire. The phrase was, the medium is the message. He just kind of threw it in in chapter one as a way to say, it is not the content of what is communicated, but it's actually the, the source from which it comes that becomes the actual message itself. The medium is the message. And just recently, there are two scholars, Hyun Yun and Blake Farrar at Texas State University, who have written an article in a paper, in a journal, the Online Journal of Communication and Media Technologies, where they have said that the news media outlet is the message. And they, through a quantitative study, exposed people to different aspects of news media over the course of some time, adjusted for all of the variables and found that in fact, it is not just the medium that is the message, but it is the media outlet that is the message. And they were able, through all the best of modern wisdom and sociology to show that it is actually the way that we listen to certain media that shapes our objective opinion, as we think, about certain topics. And now we could go on and on to talk about the way that the media affects us, but the point of me bringing this up to you is simply this, that we live in a time of incredible technological exposure to all kinds of voices. And as Christians, we need to not be naive to the way that those voices influence us. And it is incredibly important in these days that at this church, in this body, in this covenant people that we have committed to lock arms with together, to walk in holiness and truth, that we allow God's word to shape us. God's word to shape us, you say, well, of course. Well, then who interprets God's word? Well, the community interprets God. Well, yes, it's the Holy Spirit in and through his word that provides for us what is true truth. And I don't know about you, but I just know that so many of, of our emotional um, investments, of our emotional bandwidth, is caught up throughout the course of the week reacting to things we see online or even the way that news is presented. Isn't that true of you? And so, friends, I just want to encourage you as a Christian to recognize that the same temptations that we have today are the same temptations that, that the recipients of this letter had in the first century. We do not know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Scholars speculate that perhaps it was Barnabas or maybe Apollos. It certainly probably was not the Apostle Paul because of the way that the Greek is written, and Paul almost always introduced himself in the first of his letters. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. We also don't specifically know to whom uh, it was written, but we do think that it was written to Jewish Christians. Those were people who had been exposed to Judaism at some point in their life who had become Christians and they saw Jesus as the Messiah and believed upon that. 
but then we're tempted to go back to the old ways of Judaism. And so you'll see as we study the text that again and again and again, the author is calling Christians not to drift away. Don't go back to the law. You have something better in the gospel in Jesus. In 2015, Stephen Colbert on um, uh, the Colbert Report kind of just threw away this line. He said, you know, the world is a world that is not comprised of truth and error. It's comprised of truthiness. Some of you remember that, truthiness. And late night comedians like Stephen Colbert sometimes touch a nerve that so much of the culture also feels, the truthiness of so much of what passes for real truth. And the Dons across the pond over in England picked up on this in the Oxford English Dictionary the next year in 2016 gave the Word of the Year award to the word post-truth. Now, 2016 seems like eons ago, but we have been able to marinate in a post-truth world since the turn of post-modernity 50 years ago. But how important it is for us to recognize that God's true truth comes to us in the form of his word and we as his people stand upon it as a man desperate stands upon a rock amidst the rising tide. So this morning what I want to do is I just want to show you that the point of Hebrews 1 and 2 is that Jesus is better than angels. If you're a note taker, you want to note that. Jesus is better than angels, and so therefore, chapter 2, pay attention to him as God's true and final word. Jesus is better than angels, therefore pay attention to him as God's true and final word. Now, paying attention to Scripture is actually more challenging than sometimes we give credence to, isn't it? Don't show me your hand, but I wonder how many of you, how many of you have just paused over the course of the week to consider God's truth in your personal life? I could also ask some of you, how many of you have considered God's truth in your personal life and then without even noticing it a moment later drifted away into some other ad you saw on your phone or something else that caught your attention for the day. Marcion in the second century is one of the most infamous heretics in the history of the church. He was a very wealthy, learned man, Marcion was, Marcion of Sinope. And Marcion decided that the God of the Old Testament, who, was, who seemed to be vengeful and mean, was somebody different than the God of the New Testament, who seemed to be loving and caring. And so do you know what Marcion did with his Old Testament? He ripped the whole thing out and he threw it aside and he started a cult, a sect of Christianity that was not Christianity at all that said, we're going to ignore the Old Testament and we are just going to deal with the New Testament. And almost every major early church father addressed the heresy of Marcionism where you ignore parts of God's word that you don't like in order to accept others. And how many of us do that? In Hebrews chapter 1, the author of Hebrews just goes straight to it. He says, first of all, why is Jesus better? Why is Jesus better? He's first of all better because he has a better name. 
Long ago, many times and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also created the world. We'll come back to that. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And verse 4, he has become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Last week, if you're at worship, you know, Lorna and the kids and I weren't here. We were visiting uh, friends of ours back in the Northeast, and uh, we we were, uh, had the privilege of staying at, um, at a, a friend of a friend's apartment in New York City, and it was at a building that our name could not get us into. And when we pulled up and we unloaded our bags, the name we give the, the doorman was not Altman. It was the person's name who owned the apartment. And so for that moment in time, all of my children, they weren't Altman's. We were part of this other family in order to get in. And it's the same, the same is true of Christians. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And beneath the layers of your last name, more fundamentally than any other identity in the world to you, is the name Christian. Your baptism signified it. Your faith professes it. That is who you are. This week, one of my, one of my children called me out and they, I said something and, and interrupted the conversation. And they said to me, Dad, that frustrates me so much. You're just being a hypocrite. And I had a long list of if, ands, or buts. And man, I was ready to pull them out. And I just, I just said, you're right. I, I am a hypocrite. I'm being a hypocrite. I'm so sorry. I didn't say very much the rest of the night because I was deeply convicted about my own hypocrisy. Because fundamentally, I am called, yes, to be a father, but beneath my last name is the fact that I am bought with the blood of Christ. And it is to shape the whole of my life, however unsuccessful I might be at that and however unsuccessful you might be at that. But Jesus gives us here, he gives us a better name. In the Greek, there are seven statements of Jesus' supremacy. Notice first statement is that he is the heir of all things, number one. Number two, look at your text. What does it say? Through whom also he created the world. That's the second. That speaks to Jesus' kingship. He is the rightful heir through whom everything exists. He created the world. Three, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Radiance of the glory of God, that's three. The exact imprint of his nature, that's four. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, that's five. That's Jesus as the prophet. And then he makes purification for sins and he sits down, he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Six and seven. That's Jesus as our high priest. Jesus has a better name as king, as prophet, and priest. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You're my son? 
Today I have begotten you. This is a quote from Psalm chapter two. And again, he quotes from 2 Samuel chapter seven, verse 14. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. It's one thing for you to be able to say, well, my name is Joe. My name is Susan. My name is Richard. That doesn't get you in to the building. But when you say, my name is Christ's, as Christians, we are covered with his righteousness. And that is objectively true of you before the Father through your justification. And it should become increasingly subjectively true of you as you get to know your heart more and know how much you want to live into that name. Amen? Jesus has a better name. Secondly, he is worthy of worship. Verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. This is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 32 in the Septuagint. That is the Old Testament translation of the Hebrew into Greek. It says there to bow down to him all gods. And the author of Hebrews translates all gods as the angels here in Hebrews 1.6. All the angels worship him because not only does Jesus have a better name, but Jesus is worthy of worship. The angels aren't to be worshiped. In fact, they had to tell us, please don't worship us. But Jesus is better. He makes his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. He has a better name. He's worthy of worship. What else? He has everlasting dominion. He doesn't have term limits. Praise God. He is one who rules and reigns forever. He quotes here from Psalm 45, uh, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your commandments. Here, this is a veiled reference to the Trinity, even in the Psalms, in Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, speaking to Jesus as God. And therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, speaking of the Father. So you see that the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it begins to appear through the Old Testament gradually and slowly. And here, the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus has a better name, he is worthy of all worship, and he has eternal dominion. Because the Lord, Psalm 102, he quotes next in verse 10, laid the foundation of the world from the beginning. You're the same, Lord Jesus, but your years have no end. He has eternal dominion. For which of the angels did God ever say, come sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Psalm 110, verse 1. And the author says, are not the angels all ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? In other words, quit listening to the angels and hear the word of the Lord, the true and final word. So, what are your angels? What tells you what is true about the world, O Christian? O curious one. And does that hold water? Because he tells us 
through a, a warning and a command in chapter 2. He says, therefore, and whenever, oh, Bible scholars, you see the word therefore, you should ask, what is the therefore? Therefore. Very good, class. And he says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. The word, the, the verb for pay much closer attention is a, is a um, word used um, in sailing. It's a, it's a nautical term. It means to keep your hands on the wheel. It means to pay attention. Some of us in the room are pilots, you know, and you know that if you're off one degree after 60 miles, you'll be a mile off your course. There was a, there's a famous flight that happened uh, years ago in New Zealand, uh, the New Air, uh, uh, New Zealand Airline Flight 901. They were going to take a flight from New Zealand down to Antarctica, and the pilot got distracted, and he ended up 28 miles off course. And there's one 12,000-foot mountain in Antarctica that you do not want to fly into. And all 257 souls on board perished because he lost track of his course. Therefore, pay much closer attention lest you drift away. There it is. Porareo in Greek, it's another nautical term. It means to drift off course. It means to lose sight. So the author of Hebrews is saying, keep your hands on the wheel, friends. Pay attention to your spiritual life. Don't drift off course. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. What does that mean? The Jews believed that the angels were the ones who gave Moses the Ten Commandments, that he delivered the law to Moses, that they were the messengers, the medium through which he received the news. And it was very reliable for, for the Jews to shape their hearts into God's holy character. But if that proved reliable, how should we escape such a greater salvation that's come to us in Jesus, who has been the perfect this example of the law to perfectly obey it and to die in our place in order to fulfill it. How shall we escape such a great example and sacrifice if we who have such a much better word? Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are to speak as it's been testified somewhere. Author of Hebrew, isn't it fun? Great. He didn't remember where it was. I feel good about that sometimes. It was Psalm chapter 8. We know now. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? He made him, Jesus, for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You put everything in subjection under his feet. While he took on flesh, he was still the one who upheld the world by the word of his power. Mary held him at her breast, and yet he still was the one who had eternal dominion, mystery of mysteries. And the author of Hebrews goes on, and we'll come back to this text again in the future, but he goes on to explain to us that, therefore, as children who have a better name, we share in flesh and blood, and Jesus also shares in flesh and blood with us. That he took upon himself the same, chapter 2, verse 14. So that he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil. 
that Jesus came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Think about the ways that some of you are petrified by the idea of your own death. It drives you to make so many decisions. You're in lifelong slavery. Do I have enough I, I can leave for the kids? Is my family secure? Is my uh, life insurance up to date? All those are good and right conversations to have and think about, but sometimes it just enslaves us because we're fearful of death. It's hard. So if you ever hear me misread the Bible, it's because my eyesight's going. I'm kind of fearful of my eyesight. And so I'm having to like adjust how close I read, you know, the Bible up here sometimes. I'm getting older. All of us are. We are enslaved to the flesh. And one day, each of us in this room will die. And we will stand before the Lord. And our only hope will be that we look in faith and we say that we have a better name because we worship the one who is worthy of worship, the Lord Jesus himself. The one who has eternal dominion. And therefore, let us not drift away. Let us keep our hands on the wheel. And that is not to suggest that you can lose your salvation. No, you will always be his. But it is to say that if you don't keep your hands on the wheel, you have not manifested the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and 23. That is the mark that you're a believer. There are plenty of us, even plenty of pastors in the world who their whole life were pretending. They were truly hypocrites. They were characters on a stage. They were actors. They didn't really believe the gospel. And I wonder if you do. And one of the ways we know that is our ability to allow the gospel to not just be a truth that we believe, good news, that it is, but it becomes the worldview through which we view everything else about life. And so, if we are to keep our hands on the wheel, we are to recognize that there are at least three reasons why we should do this. Number one, because we are under the curse of the law. We are subject to death because of our sin. We're under the curse of the law. Why should we keep our hands on the wheel? Number two, because the world is subject to Christ's rule and reign. He is the king, and we are his subjects. The world is subject to Christ's rule and reign. And number three, that Christ will stop at nothing to redeem you. I put down here four questions to evaluate your messengers of truth. And I would encourage you to ask these questions honestly this week. How does what I am hearing complement or compete with the story of redemptive history revealed in Jesus? Does what I am hearing fuel pride and, re and reliance upon mankind or self, or does it humble me by exalting Christ's righteousness? Does this, what I'm hearing, encourage me to manifest the fruit of the Spirit in my life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And does this promote slavish fear to the principalities of this world? Or does it warn me to act in light 
of the hope of the gospel. In other words, does it cause you to worry or does it cause you to trust? Would you ask yourself, who is your messenger of truth? And would you furthermore, if you're not a Christian in the room, would you ask yourself, what would Jesus need to do to prove to you that he is the truth? Would he need to come to you? Would he need to die for you? Would he need to rise for you? Friends, this is our Christ who has come, who has died for you, and who rose again on the third day. Hallelujah. Let's pray together.